All right, well, good morning again. Let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we continue our journey through the letter of 1 Corinthians. And if uh, somebody, Cade, would you mind turning on the lights back there? Just that way people don't fall asleep. Sorry to pick on you. Kate doesn't mind. He loves the attention. Yeah, just flip them all on. All but that last switch. There you go. Last time we didn't flip those back on, and you all looked like you were catatonic. It was like looking at a bunch of zombies. I'm like, what in the heck? I knew what I was bringing was good, but I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know. This can't be me. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. So as we head that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians at first, through these first 11 chapters, to correctively address issues that are happening in Corinth. And man, they have got a tremendous amount of issues. They are a church that is tore up from the floor up. There are dudes sleeping with their stepmom. There are people getting drunk in communion. I mean, it is a hot mess that's taking place inside the church in Corinth. But the first issue that Paul actually begins to address isn't any of those things. In chapter 1, what he wants to address right off the bat is the most pervasive issue that still exists in church today, and that is divisiveness. Paul is addressing the divisions that were coming up inside the church in Corinth for one very particular reason, because they were carnal. They were struggling with carnality, which meant as believers, they were following after their flesh instead of the Spirit. And as they were following after their flesh, they were doing what was right by old number one. They were looking out for themselves above all others, which just reminded me of this. Um, do you know uh, why the shrimp did not invite his friends to church? Because he was shellfish. It was, it's not going to get better. I'm just telling you, shellfish. So this is the issue for the Corinthians. They were shellfish. They were a selfish church. They were looking out for their own desires. How could they take care of number one first. And what Paul says in a very bold statement, chapter 11, verse 1, is this. Um, if you want to know what it looks like to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now that's a statement that for many of us, it draws us back. We're like, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready to say that. But for the Apostle Paul, he could say that because he was being led by the Spirit. doesn't mean that he was perfect in everything that he did, but he was striving to be led by the Spirit in all that he did and the way he operated. And so as we arrive then in chapter 12, and we'll find this through the rest of the book, uh, Paul's tone changes. He goes from one of a correction to actually a tone of being constructive in nature. And he's trying to still address issues or questions that they had as a church in Corinth. And what we've covered over these last several weeks, and we'll, we'll be there again next week, is he was addressing this question of spiritual gifts. What do we do with these gifts or these uh, charismas, these things that are given to us by the Lord just because He loves us? How do we handle this? And the Corinthian church has an issue with this, not because they have no gifts, but because, in fact, they had many gifts. They were an exceedingly gifted, a very blessed church. And yet, the problem we have with gifts is uh, far too often we look at the gifts people have and we mistake that for maturity. As people would look at the Corinthian church, they would look at them and go, wow, gifted! They can do all these things and prophesy and speak in tongues and work miracles. Man, they are so mature. And that is uh, not the case whatsoever. Because maturity is actually put on display, not by our giftings, but by our fruit. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Period. Nothing else. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
Now, when you bite into the love fruit, it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. It has all these flavors within it, but the fruit of the Spirit, first and foremost and only, is love. And so for the Corinthians, their divisiveness meant that they had no love for one another. This is the issue that Paul is bringing up. And so as he's gone through chapter 12 and he said, here's all the spiritual gifts that you guys possess and really what they all mean, he arrives in verse 31 and he says, but earnestly desire the best gifts. So it's not a bad thing to desire gifts from our dad. It's a good thing to say, Father, give me good gifts. We want to receive those as your children. But he says at the end of this verse, yet I show you a more excellent way. I'm going to show you something even better, something more excellent. He's going to now arrive in chapter 13, which is one of uh, the most read, most popular chapters for sure in all of 1 Corinthians and really in uh, probably all of the New Testament, uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so Paul's going to begin in verse 1 by saying, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And so for these Corinthians who have been given the gift, the ability to be able to speak in tongues, Paul wants to address this. He says, as though I speak in the tongue of men or angels. So which one is it? I believe Paul probably had the gifting to speak in either. The diverse tongues, he could speak in an angelic language that would be communicated with in heaven. He could speak in the tongues of uh, other nations. And so this is beautiful gift. But remember when we talked about this two weeks ago, what the purpose of the gift is. It's not for our own uh, glory for us to be looked at or even to prophesy. The gift of tongues is always to give God praise. It's from man to God. And so we see that even in chapter 2, verse 11, when the disciples were given the ability to speak in languages on that day of Pentecost. You'll note in verse 11, what the what Luke records is that as they were hearing this, this message in their own a tongue, their own language, they were hearing glory be given to God, you see. It was an act of worship. And this is what Paul's saying. But his point is, you can speak in all these different languages, beautiful things you can say, but if you don't have love, you're a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And for any of you that have uh, children, and now at this point maybe you even have uh, grandchildren, you know that there is maybe uh, no worse thing than on Christmas Day, you unwrap the gift of the noisemaker. That thing that somebody wanted to bless you with, that you're fairly sure was created in Satan's laboratory. That thing, like this picture up at the top right of the screen, I found this. These are, collect all four, they are screaming collectible dragons. You can imagine that going through the house. Now for me, what people have sought to bless us with is uh, something, a product called uh, Flarp. And if you've never heard of this, this is a bucket, what looks like putty, but when you put uh, your finger or another object in it and then pull it out, it makes the beautiful noise of... So you can imagine when you have been given, gifted, this wonderful gift of flarp, and now as a father, I'm trying to study God's Word. I'm working on a message to just wow you people with. And you're going to be blown away. And, and as I'm studying, I get the... Behind me. Like this... But here's what Paul is stating. He is saying, you can have the gift of speaking in all kind of diverse tongues, and yet if you don't have love, you sound like a big bucket of flarp at the end of the day. And this, and as he's saying this, he's saying, we have to have 
love in order for these gifts to be received properly, for them to be executed correctly. Now the word love in some of your Bibles, for those of you that uh, love the old King James Version, it will actually be translated uh, charity. And you might wonder why it would be translated charity. Well, if you go all the way back to when the King James was translated, it was actually translated from the Latin Vulgate. And as the, they were translating the Bible from Greek to Latin, they came across the, a different word being used for love than traditionally was used. And so they brought it together with the closest proximity. The word was charitas in the Latin. And it meant, just like our word for charity, uh, giving just for the sake of giving. To give just for the sake of giving to the recipient, not expecting anything in return, a selfless kind of giving. Now, it's later been translated back to love for us because often we don't view charity like that. We don't want to be a charity case. We've somehow disparaged the word charity, but that's the reason it was used. It was a different word for love. And in fact, the Greeks had four different words that were used for love. The first is the word astorge. This is a love of uh, empathy or sympathy. It's a love that feels for someone else. Compassion, empathetic. Um, the second is the word of phileo. This is a brotherly kind of a love or a love for one's uh, family. The word uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It comes from this root, the word phileo. The third is the word uh, eros. It's where we get the word erotic from. And it's a physical or intimate uh, kind of a love. And then lastly is the word that was actually used here by the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is a new kind of a love. The reason that they translated it, charity, because the word is agape. And an agape love is a self-sacrificing, unconditional, the love that uh, no one had witnessed before until Christ Jesus came on the scene. A love that so uh, loved people on the other end that he was willing to receive nothing in return but to give everything. For others, And so what we find is, is we're going to go through this uh, 13th chapter, is that this kind of a love, this is not possible unless he is actually living in us. Only the love of Christ can bring us to a point where we can love like that, with an agape kind of a love. Now, Paul continues in verse 2, and he says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, all, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So Paul takes it a step further. I can have all these giftings. I can even have all faith. Now think about that. What did Jesus say in Matthew 17? But uh, if you had just a little bit of faith, mustard seed faith, just teeny faith, you could tell this mountain to throw itself into the sea, and it would listen to you. That's what just a little bit of faith can do. And what Paul's saying is, not only that faith, but if I had that faith times infinity, if I had all faith imaginable, if I had all the faith that you can consider or conceive in the world from here to eternity and back, uh, and I don't have love, it's nothing. It's a complete waste of time. As Paul was addressing the Galatians, who, if you might remember that study we had uh, probably a year or so ago through that letter, he was addressing a church that really wanted to, to work their way into heaven. Uh, they were consumed by what they could do, uh, by the works that they could perform. And as Paul was writing to them in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. The act of circumcision or uncircumcision was what? A work of quite literally the flesh. What can I do for God? But he says it does not avail anything 
but faith working through love. The only way faith can actually be activated correctly is if that faith is exercised through agape love. Now, if you turn to Luke chapter 9, uh, this is the spot where Jesus is traveling with the disciples through Samaria. And for the disciples and the for the Jews and the Samaritans, they had a bit of an issue. You see, um, they hated one another. Uh, to the Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds, and uh, in fact, they would refer to them as dogs. And it wasn't a term of endearment as they talked about them being dogs. But as Jesus and the disciples are traveling uh, through Samaria, James and John, they approach Christ and they've got a great idea because they're being rejected every city they arrive at. And as they have this great idea, they come to the Lord and like, hey, we're being rejected. Here's an idea. Uh, How about we call down fire from heaven and smoke all these Samaritans? And Jesus, in response to this, says, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Verse 56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. Now think about that. James and John had enough faith to approach the Son of God and say, Can we call down fire from heaven like Elijah? I mean, that's some kind of faith they had. But look at what they wanted the result of their faith to be. They wanted to consume people. They wanted to burn people. And yet what Christ said is, I did not come to destroy men, but to save them. You see, agape love actually takes the fire for us. Because the fire that James and John wanted to call down from heaven, uh, the wrath of God, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm the recipient of God's wrath. I should be. I'm the rightful heir of the wrath of God. And yet because of the agape love of Christ Jesus, he took the fire that you and I deserve on our behalf because he so loved the world. And so what Paul is saying is our faith should actually be a faith that has that kind of a love behind it, that wants to see people succeed. He continues in verse 3 and says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So Paul, in these first three verses, has talked about uh, giftings, He's talked about faith, and now he's going to talk about sacrifice. He's saying, even though I sacrifice, I give everything up. I even am willing to give my own life. If I'm not doing it from a place of agape love, it's a complete waste. And what we know all too well in this country is there are people that have a demented and a twisted kind of a faith that they're willing to sacrifice their own life. They're willing to drive planes into buildings because they claim that they love, and yet their love is looking to destroy. And what Paul is communicating is, if you don't have actual love, if you believe that driving a plane into a building is going to reach some spot with Allah, uh, you are woefully mistaken, because it is a complete and utter waste. For those men, unfortunately, they wasted uh, their own lives and will receive absolutely nothing but an eternity in hell. And Jesus, knowing this, he tries to communicate this to the Pharisees, the very people that should have known the law. He he says to them in Matthew 9, verse 13, uh, go and learn what this means. Go back to scriptures and learn the meaning of this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. I'm not looking for you to sacrifice yourself if you're not willing to be merciful. And what is mercy but compassion in action? It's our compassion, our love for others actually in action. It's putting feet 
to our faith. In fact, what John would say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and I love this because uh, this is the same John who, when I read out of Luke 9, wanted to smoke a bunch of Samaritans. Uh, same guy, now transformed years later by the agape love of Christ. Here's what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He who, lo- he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is the very personification of love. So as we're getting ready to read here in just a few minutes, as Paul is done admonishing them about love, he's getting ready to define what love is. Keep in mind as we read this, what God is doing is defining himself. He is defining the very person of Jesus. And so this is going to take a a personal tone to it as he's seeking to actually define what love looks like. Verse 4, Paul starts by stating love suffers long. Love is patient. Love is willing to be in it for the long haul, to suffer long. And this is the reality for the mature Christian. A mature faith is a patient faith. Now the question always comes up, how patient should I be? Well, thankfully for us, the Apostle Peter had the same question. He approaches Jesus in Matthew 18, and he says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? How about seven times? And you know, Peter, as he said that, he was so glib. He's like, this is going to make me look really holy. I'm going to ask seven times, should I forgive my brother? And Jesus' response in uh, verse 22 of Matthew 18, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So if you're looking for a number, Pete, here's a number. Not seven times, but try 490. And the reason Jesus says this isn't to get us to try to keep track. He knows we're going to lose track before we ever get to 490. The idea is uh, love doesn't keep track. Love just continues to suffer long because love is willing to be patient. And we think about that being personified in Christ Jesus. Man, how patient has he been with us. Man, how many times is he willing to forgive over and over and not even keep track of the number? Thank God that he does it. Now, he continues and says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love is kind. It's important to note we're not called just to suffer long, suffer and endure, but we're also called to suffer. We're also, it depends on how we suffer as well, is what I'm trying to get at. It's not enough for us to just be patient and be in the game. Uh, Love that is kind is also not cynical, you see. We're not called to just, I'm suffering with Jesus. Here I am just suffering long. In it for the long haul. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. No, we're called to be kind. We're called to actually look at others and have the kindness of God as we communicate with people. Well, my wife has tried to instill in our children. She's a much better mom than I am a dad. If you guys haven't already figured that out, you probably have. Um, But even as a coach as well, what she would tell her kids is, uh, no one is probably going to remember your name. They're probably not going to remember anything about you other than how you made them feel. Were you kind? Were you kind in that spot? And for me, getting the opportunity, it's it's a blessing to get to do funerals for people. And one thing I have noted is nobody ever, as they're reminiscing and remembering their loved one that's passed on, remembers uh, just how uh, punctual Billy Bob was or how much he gave to the family. You know what they remember? If he was kind or not. 
That's the thing that translates even beyond our life is, were you kind? And so this is love. And by the way, this is wrapped up in God's character. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, it's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. It's not being browbeaten by God that leaves us in a place where we're ready to repent, we're ready to lay it all down. It's his goodness. It's his long-suffering and his patience and his kindness with me that leads me to a spot where I'm on my knees and saying, God, you're so good. Now, as we continue, Paul says, uh, love is, it suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. And so love is not uh, envious. This is not a characteristic of God. A characteristic of God that often people confuse with envy is uh, jealousy. But you see, for envy, envy looks to my neighbor and wants everything my neighbor has. I want their house. I want their job. I want their family. Uh, I'll even take their wife, right? And so envy looks and covets what others have. But jealousy, Exodus 34 says, our God's name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Why? Because he wants us back. Jealousy always wants back what was previously uh, ours. This is how God views us. He is a jealous God because he'll stop at nothing to get us back. That's how much he loves us. And so uh, love doesn't envy, but instead what love does is champions people. I love this as I consider God. Here's this uh, picture, this little meme of this boy that's a Penguins fan. You ever think about God like that? Cheering us on. Yeah! So excited for us to do something good or or to get it right. Like God, so he cheers us on. He champions us in this journey that we're on. Verse uh, 4, as we continue, love is not uh, puffed up. Excuse me, love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Love is not out with its chest puffed out like a banny rooster. Like, look at me. Here I am, so lovey, lovey. And for us in our society, where does that play out the most? but on the stinking book of face, right? People look at, want to show me how loving you are, how humble I am. Meanwhile, you told 5,000 of your closest friends just how loving and humble you are. I feel like maybe you're not that loving or that humble. By the time I get done reading that, right? That's, that's not how love communicates. Love is actually willing to take a back seat. Love is willing to not be noticed or recognized at all, even if nobody ever knows that we did that thing, that we stepped into that spot and helped that person. This is what love looks like. It's willing to be behind uh, the scenes and not promoting oneself. Verse 5, love does not behave rudely. And so love does not behave rudely and does not seek its own. So as we see love, it should not be communicated in rudeness or in, uh, again, in some kind of a self-promotion. And we can often confuse uh, righteousness and in and faithfulness, and really like this, putting a sandwich board and proclaiming the name of God, like somehow that's the love of God. I hate to tell you, but that's not love. When you put a sandwich board and stand out on the street corner and yell at people, uh, that's just weird. That's just strange. And for years as a kid, we would go to the Indy 500, and I'd see those guys that would stand out there on Georgetown as people would walk by, and they'd get on their mic, and they'd say, Drunks! fornicators you're all going to hell i'm like look at that like how faithful they are like they they are so i don't have that kind of faith and it wasn't until years later i'm like that's not faith that's just weird and annoying 
That's that's not leading anybody to Christ, is what I'm driving at. And so here's Jesus. We see his character laid out in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 42 is Isaiah's prophesying of the Messiah. And these same words are communicated in Matthew 12. Speaking of him, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Speaking of Jesus, he's not looking to promote himself. He's not out on the street corner. He's just communicating goodness through his very person that he is. Now, back to verse 5. Love does not behave rudely nor seek its own and is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Now, in some of your Bibles, there's a chance the word uh, easily is inserted in there uh, with italics because it's not included in the original manuscript and it's not really what God wanted to communicate through the Apostle Paul. The reason the word easily is inserted is because, well, I like it a lot better, and so do you. Why do we like it better? Well, because if I'm not easily provoked, I can now justify my own bad behavior because you were just thinking provoking me, pushing my buttons and pushing my buttons. The Bible says love isn't easily provoked. They provoked me to the point where I'm going to take a pound of flesh now. So if we're not careful, we can allow uh, provocation to justify our own bad behavior. But a characteristic of Christ that we see throughout his ministry is what were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans trying to do but provoke him. They were pushing him in every possible way to provoke him, and yet he did not react. Why? Because love is not provoked. And so he wasn't provoked to react in that way. Finally, at the end here of verse 5, love thinks no evil. Love does not think evil. In other words, love is not suspicious. And here's the thing about suspicion. Um, Suspicion kills relationships because it absolutely obliterates trust. Nobody probably knew or articulated this better outside of Paul uh, than the king. Elvis Presley, right? I'm caught in a trap. I can't turn back because I love you too much, baby. Right? So this is what the king, but what the king said is we can't go on together with suspicious minds. Their love couldn't survive the suspicion that existed inside the relationship. And the same is true for us. Love cannot prevail if we're going to be suspicious, if we're going to think evil. But the question that comes up is, well, should I trust someone that's hurt me? What if they've let me down? What if they've violated my trust over and over and over again? You're saying that I should just blindly trust them? And my answer to that is, um, it's important to make sure we know who we're placing our trust in. Don't simply place your trust in any man or any woman, uh, but I encourage you to place your trust in the man. The one who will not let us down. And by the way, just as a side note, um, the person in my life that has let me down the absolute most without fail is uh, me. I let me down all the time. I have all these kind of ideas of who I should and shouldn't be, and I'm consistently letting me down. And so the encouragement here is not to put our trust just in anyone, but to put our trust in the one, the man Christ, Jesus, who does not ever fail because he is love. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 states this, 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. I can put my trust in Him because He who promised is faithful. What Paul would communicate to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 is, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. There are some things that Jesus cannot do. One of those is deny Himself and deny His Word. He is faithful. His word will be true. And so if we're looking for a place to place our trust and then allow all of our relationships to be built off of that, the trust can be placed in Christ Jesus, in his person. And then suspicion begins to go away. Because even if someone violates my trust, the reality is we're all going to let one another down at some point. If I put my trust and my hope in Jesus, then I'm not surprised. (laughs) that I'm not shocked and my trust is able to stay there and stay firm because he is faithful. Now back to the text at hand. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't look at someone else who's in a spot of lawlessness or iniquity and then be excited about it. That Love doesn't celebrate that. By the way, that means even if they deserve it or if they're really stupid. And lots of times that's where we struggle. We're like, you know why that happened? Because they're stupid. Love doesn't celebrate that though. Love doesn't get excited about that. But instead what love does here at the uh, next line of verse 6, rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the other guy doing well. Even if, by the way, he gets the job I really wanted. Even if he's driving the car I really wanted. Heck, even if you got the wife I wanted. I mean, love rejoices in others doing well and does not rejoice in others failing, even if they had it coming. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so, does this mean, as love believes all things and bears all things, that somehow love is blind? And I would tell you absolutely not. But in fact, love sees things more clearly than everybody else. But what love does is love chooses to give grace. What is grace? But unmerited favor. It's giving people what they do not deserve, even though they do not deserve it. And this, by the way, is completely impossible in our flesh. You cannot come up with enough agape love to do that. It can only be done if we view things through the lens of the cross. And once we begin to view things through the lens of the cross and through that sacrifice, through Him taking all the things that I deserve upon Himself and being nailed to a tree, and I see that kind of grace, when I see grace like that, that's all the conviction I need. That's all the reminding that I need. It it should be abundantly easier for me to give others grace when I realize the grace that he's bestowed upon me. And so viewing things through the lens of the cross. Now, where does that leave us in this spot? How do we take it? Where do we go from here might be the question. Or or what do I do? What am I in this spot of my walk called to do? I'm so glad you asked. John chapter 15, verse 5. Here's what Jesus says that we are called to do. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
What are we called to do? Abide. This is what we're called to do. Simply abiding in Him. And as we abide in Him, as we literally, you might not think it's so valuable to be here today, but realize what you're doing sitting here today is you're abiding. You're abiding in Him. And as His Word is then communicated to you, Isaiah would say, uh, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, what you're doing is abiding. And as you abide, fruit will be produced. But this love that we want to communicate, that we can't do as we abide, He will do it through us. There's no amount of work we can do. I mean, think about this just practically. The, the grape can't be on the end of the branch. What are you doing? Bearing fruit? Trying to produce fruit? That's ridiculous, right? We're not called to produce fruit. We're called to simply abide. And as we abide, He will bear fruit in our life. And so it's this beautiful promise of the gospel. Now, as we continue, verse 8. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. And so, there are those who in reading uh, this text, they look at this and they say, this is why uh, the gifts are no longer in play. Because what Paul says is that when that which is perfect has come, and they have now layered on the canon, the canonized Bible you hold in your hands, they've said this is perfect, this is the infallible word of God, which is accurate, but when that which is perfect has come, all the gifts go away. But what they have done, and I'd submit to you, is um, taken the text out of its context. And so as Paul is communicating this, he is then, if you skip down to verse 12, he says, I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. What he's communicating is when we are perfect or made complete. When is that? When I see Christ Jesus face to face. This is when the gifts are no longer needed. This is when prophecy is no longer needed. When I'm in heaven with Him, I don't need a prophetic word. I don't need to speak with the tongue of angels. I don't need all these giftings. But let me tell you, while I'm still here on earth, I'll take all the help I can get. I'll take every gift He wants to lay on me. And so should you. Don't deny the gifting He wants to give you to navigate through this life. When we get to heaven, we'll no longer have need of these giftings. But for now, we need all we can get. And what Joel chapter 2 verse 28 communicates, and actually uh, Peter repeats this on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them as he's there and he and people are wondering what in the world is happening. What he says is it, from verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit on those days. We are in a time where we have got the spirit of God that's been poured out upon us from that day forth. And we need all the help he can give us until the day we see Christ Jesus face to face. Now, these things are hard for us to see, and Paul is going to acknowledge that when he says in verse 11, 
When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I am also known. So what Paul is communicating here, he actually gives us several analogies. He says, first, as we're children, and then we become adults, we put away our childish things. Why? Because we have matured. He communicates, secondly, by saying, uh, when I uh, look in a mirror, I can only see dimly, but then face to face, I can see more clearly. Remember, back in that day, they didn't have mirrors like what we have traditionally. All they had was uh, shined up uh, brass. In other words, you could go out to the fender of your car, polish that thing up and look, and you can catch a bit of your reflection, but what you know is you can't see yourself clearly. I can't tell if I got a big old pimple in the middle of my forehead or a boogie hanging out of my nose looking in my car fender. And this is what Paul is saying, is that in this life we're at right now, we're looking in the mirror dimly. We cannot see clearly, but when I see him as he is, on that day when I'm face to face with him, all these questions are going to go away. I'm going to be able to see and understand clearly what John communicates in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 is this, Beloved, now we are children of God. Did you catch that? And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so when we see him as he is, we will have an additional understanding. We will finally be able to fully understand and comprehend. I don't know that actually throughout all of eternity I'm ever going to completely comprehend the love of Christ. But we're going to see it a whole lot more clearly than what we do today. And so there's this understanding that when we are there, we're going to have this supernatural ability to get it. Now, this is a side note might help answer a question that you might have had, and that is, when I get to heaven, am I going to know people who have gone on before me? Am I going to recognize my loved ones? Am I going to recognize these people uh, from history and throughout you know, biblical history? Am I going to be able to know who they are? And I believe some of the indication is in Matthew 17. From the Mount of Transfiguration, here's Jesus. He takes Peter, James, and John up on uh, the mountain and they fall asleep and take a nap. Like me, they get a little tired. But when they wake up, they see Jesus transfigured, and he's there with two other dudes. And what does Peter do? But he gets all excited. you got to love Peter, his exuberance. He's like, it's good that we should be here. I'm going to build a tent for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, how in the world did Peter know that that was Moses and that was Elijah? I mean, there was no pictures of these guys. They weren't wearing Hebrew name tags. Uh, Mo and Eli, they didn't, how on earth would he know who that was unless, as he saw Jesus face to face, he then had supernatural understanding of these heroes of the Old Testament. And so for us, when we arrive, when we see him as he is, we're going to have supernatural understanding of who other people are. So take some reassurance in that. Now, finally, finally, as we arrive in verse 13, and now, Abide, faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So what Paul lists out here are what I would call the three amigos of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. 
but the greatest of which is love. Now for faith, faith looks back. Faith looks into the past and it sees all that I have done and and I am reminded of what Christ died for. He took care of everything for my path, my past, so no longer do I have to be defined by that. And by faith, I am saved. It's such a huge blessing. Now hope always looks to the future. Hope looks ahead. Hope says, if Christ died for me, then he's going to come back and save me. He's going to come back and return. He's going to come back and get me. In fact, the Holy Spirit is this kind of down payment, this deposit, that if he's given me his spirit, he's surely going to come and return for me. And so as a result, I have hope. I have this blessed assurance. It's not like a hope that I hope I get a cheeseburger for lunch today. This is a promise, a guarantee from the Father that he's going to come, he's going to return for me. But here's why love is greater than those two. Because love is right here and right now. And you know where I need the most help? I need help right now. You know where my pain exists, my suffering exists, my doubt exists, my struggle exists? It exists right here and right now. And so as Jesus exists in the here and now, what he's saying through this is, this is where you can interact with me. You can lean on me. You can trust me right here in the here and now. Now, the struggle we have when we're struggling in the love department, we have to ask ourselves, uh, am I perhaps lacking faith? Because lacking faith, what happens there is I'm, I'm shackled to my past. When I struggle with the faith that he has taken care of it, that he's eradicated it, I, I am shackled and chained to that. And as a result, I'm ineffective in the here and now, you see. And on the flip side, if I'm struggling with hope and I can't see the future correctly, I'm now consumed about all things happening in the future. What happens with my 401k or my investments or my kids or their future? Where are we going to live? What's going to happen with this diagnosis? I have all these struggles in the future and all the what ifs. And as I struggle in that and I'm consumed by that, I'm once again rendered ineffective in the here and now. But what love does, love reminds me. Love reminds me that what Colossians 2.14 says is that all those things, the handwriting of requirements that was against me, that was contrary to me, he nailed those to the cross and he buried those things. And they can stay in hell where they belong because I'm saved. What hope does, what love does, is it reminds me what Jesus communicates in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, as he's speaking there in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he's communicating with his disciples. And he says this in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Love reminds me of that verse so I can go, if God so loved the sparrows and the birds of the air, how much more is he going to take care of me for all of eternity? And as I wrap my mind around that, I can love in the present. And so my challenge to you today is is to have a faith that is reminded that your past has been dealt with. It's to have a hope in the future that Jesus is taking care of all those things all the way out into eternity. And in doing so, you can love right in the here and the now. So Father, thank you so much for 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
Thank you, Lord, for faith and hope and love, most importantly for love. Thank you, Father, for the way that you love us so much that you would give yourself completely and totally to us and for us. That's a kind of love that's hard to comprehend. Thank you, Lord, that we can love others when we look at them through the lens of the cross. A lens that so clearly puts into focus all that you gave your life for. So if you can forgive like that, I'm most assuredly can forgive like that. Lord, help us to be able to love people right where they're at, right where we're at, in the here and now. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.